0: Well, Father, there are times when we sense our need of you more than others. And there are times when even those who don't know you suddenly begin to think about you. And we're in one of those periods. And because we know your word and because we know your scripture, we know that you are the God who creates well being, and you are the God who is the one who is in control of even calamities. You told Joseph to tell Pharaoh that there would be seven years of prosperity, and then there would be seven years of famine. That didn't happen because you allowed it, it happened because you planned it. And we thank you that you are the God. Of whom nothing takes you by surprise, nothing stuns you, nothing shocks you, nothing worries you, because you are God and you are great, and because you're sovereign, and because you are the Creator. And you are not only the Creator, but you are the sustainer of the earth and of all life and of all people. You are the God who gives us breath. You are the God who is in charge of uh, economic cycles and weather. The Bible clearly teaches that. So what that does for us Lord is when when things uh, when things are going well quite frankly we forget how desperately we need you. But when things are tumultuous and when things are uncertain and when we're anxious and we wonder what's going to happen tomorrow and we have a sense that all of this stuff that we're in is not over. We are reminded that underneath are the everlasting arms. We think about the importance of a right foundation. Jesus said that the foolish man built his house upon the sand. And when the storms came, inevitably it would be destroyed, but the wise man built his house upon the rock. Now, we are interested, Lord, in building our lives and our families upon you and upon your word and upon your truth. And we thank you that when the storms come and when the uncertainty comes and when we don't know what another day will bring and the whole world is shaking and the whole world is quaking because, quite frankly, nobody knows how to fix this thing. Nobody. Uh, We believe this is of your design. And we pray for ourselves that you would help us during these times to apply our faith. Help us to think biblically. Help us not to be swept up in a panic or in fretfulness. Help us to keep our feet under us. There are other issues that are going on in our lives. There are some in here who are brokenhearted. There are others who are discouraged because of circumstances and events that have taken place over the last several days personally that have been setbacks for them. Remind us that you are the God who always makes a way. Remind us that you are the God who is near to the broken-hearted, and you save those who are crushed in spirit. We don't need you, Father, to appear as anything other than you are. We don't need you to appear to us as a woman or as a, uh, anything except God the Father. That's who you are. You're the perfect Father. And for thousands of years, you've been healing people with broken hearts who have not had a right father, but then they are introduced to you through your son, Jesus. You're all we need. Now give us perspective tonight. Help us, to, uh, help us to look at our own hearts. Help us to look at our own motivations. Do some surgery tonight, Lord. We all need it. You're the great physician. You know what's in our hearts, and you know how to fix hearts. Each guy in here is different, facing different stuff. We have different needs. Give us tonight, Lord, each guy, the exact prescription that he needs. We pray for our country. It's a mess. We don't hope in any candidate. We hope in you. You've already chosen the next leader. We trust you. We trust you. We pray these things in your great name. Amen. In the 1970s, there was a very popular book uh, with a very simple title called The Peter Principle. And the, the Peter Principle, the, the, the basic idea behind the Peter Principle, is that, is that uh, uh, corporations promote people to their level of incompetency. Now, that's, very, that's a very interesting concept. In other words, if you're a great salesman, if you're the best salesman in the company, um, what's the natural thing to do? Well, because you, you're doing so well, and you're, you're, you're making your quotas and well beyond your quotas, and you're just cleaning up. Well, you take a guy who's a salesman and you promote him to sales manager. And what you've just done is that you've taken that guy and you've promoted him to his level of incompetency. Because guys, generally speaking, who are great salesmen are not great managers. And so if we're not careful, what happens is is because we're always thinking about promotion and we're always thinking about advancement and we're always thinking about the next level, is that, is that people rise to the level of where they are incompetent and bureaucratic and completely non-productive, and then we leave them there. It, it's a real mistake. Some of us uh, remember the Olympic Games that took place in Munich in 1972, and that's when the uh, Palestinian terrorists grabbed 11 Israeli uh, athletes you remember the standoff, suddenly Jim McKay was going from early in the morning, all night, and he wasn't talking about uh, track and field or any of the other events, but it was, a, it was a pretty serious situation. The Germans had assembled a crack team of expert sharpshooters, the very best sharpshooters in all of Germany. In anticipation of a situation that could arise, they got these guys who were the very best snipers in all of Germany. And they trained them, and they had them on standby in case something were to occur. There would never been any kind of terrorist attack before 72 in an Olympic game. Well, it happened. And so these uh, expert sniper sharpshooters were called into the crisis. And as they set out their plans, each of the 11 snipers were assigned a particular terrorist. It was all planned. They went over it, they went over it, they went over it. It was foolproof. At the exact moment, each of the snipers would fire and all of the terrorists would be taken out. Therefore, the hostages would be free. When the signal was given to pull the trigger, all of the snipers pulled the trigger except two. They couldn't do it. They couldn't perform in the clutch. And because two of them couldn't perform, 11 died because the two they were supposed to have taken out were not taken out. And they had just enough time to kill every single hostage. That is a very sad and tragic example of the Peter principle. Just because you can hit a target on a range doesn't mean you can perform under pressure. But you know, it's interesting. It was, it, it, it was quite uh, an honor to be chosen for this team. You know, a lot of times leadership is more than just having external qualifications. Anybody can perform when life is normal. Anybody can function when, when things are going the way that they are supposed to be going. But the test of leadership is when there's crisis. The test of leadership is when things are suddenly in chaos. That is the test of crisis. Uh, we've been talking about the giants in this study this fall. And we've been talking about the different giants that we face in the Christian life. And our premise, I'll give it to you again, our premise is very simple. The premise is this. If you are going to be used by God, you are going to have to fight the giants. Uh, I'll make this real brief just to catch you up to speed if you're here for the first time. The principle comes from Numbers chapter 13, where the 12 spies were sent into the land to do a reconnaissance mission. They come back, they give the report to uh, Moses and Aaron and all the people. And as you know, uh, they all said it's a great land. But 10 out of the 12 giants were, uh, 10 out of the 12 spies were very, very concerned because there was a race of giants in the land, the Anakim. And Because of the giants, the ten were trembling in their boots, and they said to the people, we are not able to take these guys. Joshua and Caleb tried to stop the panic, and they said, God will fight for us. But the ten were so panic-stricken that they in turn um, gave their panic to the congregation. They wanted to rebel against Moses. Pick a new leader and go back to Egypt, which made absolutely no sense whatsoever. But when you panic, you're not thinking rationally. We know of Joshua and Caleb. None of us in here can name the other 10 spies. And the reason we can't name them is because, quite frankly, they were useless and they were worthless. And they accomplished nothing with their lives. Although they knew the truth of God, they did not apply the truth of God. And in the moment of crisis, although they're called in Numbers 13, although they are called leaders, every one of them are called leaders, when push came to shove, they couldn't pull the trigger. They couldn't pull the trigger, and they couldn't trust God, and they wouldn't trust God. But Joshua and Caleb said, God will fight for us. They were willing to fight the giants, therefore they were used by God. As we've said, there are all kinds of different giants. Some giants are more subtle than other giants. And tonight we've got a subtle giant. Tonight we're going to look at the giant of self-promotion. That's a very subtle giant. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to Joshua chapter 1. What you've got going on in Joshua 1 is you've got a transition happening. And it's, it's a pretty, pretty large transition. In fact, what we ought to do is back up a page and... Look in Deuteronomy 34, which is all about the death of Moses. It says in verse 5 of chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Verse 7, Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Moses was, uh, Moses was one of the all-time greats of the Old Testament. One of the all-time greats. How do you replace a guy like Moses? Well, you don't replace him. I, You just don't. But every man has his time. Every man has his span of influence. Every man has his appointment by God. And that appointment by God has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. That's true for all leaders. So our trust and our hope is not in leaders. Our trust and our hope is in the living God. The thing about God is, God's overseeing the, all, the, the whole process. And when a great leader is removed by God, God has the next one in the wings ready to step in. Now, in this case, it's going to be Joshua. So you look at verse 9 of Deuteronomy 34, and it says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, For Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So what you have going on here is that you've got a significant significant promotion. Now, up until this point, we often hear about Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. Because these these two guys go back to the whole deal with the spies and standing up and taking on the ten, and they stood together. They stood alone together. Sometimes you have to stand alone, don't you? But it's always good to stand alone with another guy if he's around. Um, They stood alone together. Uh, What happens here is that Moses dies. Joshua has been appointed. He's been uh, uh, anointed to be the next leader. And, and when Joshua was anointed to be the man who replaced Joshua, Caleb took his football and went home. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. It, it happens a lot of times in a church. It happens a lot of time in different ministries. There is a, um, a change at the top or a change in this ministry or a change here, and uh, if the truth were to be known, there were two or three or four people who want that position. And if you've been around churches for any length of time, you would swear that Acorn has been in there for 300 years. <laughs> or any of the other groups. I mean, I mean, you know, you see, the stuff you see seeing going on in the political world, Democrat, Republican, I've seen in churches. And so have you. Because people's hearts are the same. And a lot of times, it's immature people who see the leadership role and they have a desire to be there, and when they don't get it, oh, they're upset, and they're bothered, and they're jealous, and so they take their football and they go home. Joshua didn't take his football and go home, did he? No. You know why he didn't? Because he was mature. Because because he was a man that had substance. He was a man... That, uh, that knew who he was and he knew what God had called him to do. This wasn't a competition. It never is a competition. So you, you've, you've got a significant transition going on here in, in the leadership. Um, now let's go to Joshua chapter 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua... The son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving you them, to the sons of Israel. Now, this is huge because they have been circling the airport now for 40 years. But finally, God gives them a green light. Finally. It's time to go. And and things have been, uh, I think as we said last week, this 40 years has been a period of, um, of maintenance, and it's been a period of monotony. For 40 years, they're just circling. They're just circling. They're just wandering. They're just wandering. Not much is going on. But now, they've got a green light. And now things are going to start happening quickly. They're going to have action. They're going to start, you know, you know what's going to start happening? They're going to start facing giants. Big time. They're in it now. There's no turning back. There's no cutting and running. They're in it. And, and Moses is off the scene, and Joshua is the new leader. Um, I want to make some observations. I think I want to make four observations tonight. about about self-promotion. The first one is this. Joshua did not seek the position. That's number one. Everybody knew that Moses wasn't going to go into the land because God told him, you're not going in. And he asked the Lord to change his mind. The Lord said, don't ever talk to me about this again. You're not going in. Now, they knew they were going in. And the trigger point was when Moses died, the mantle is transferred to Joshua, and God says, now we're going. But the interesting thing to me is, as you read all of the accounts, the background accounts, I don't see at all. I don't see a hint. I don't see, um, I don't see anyone speaking off the record. I don't see any evidence whatsoever that ever that, that Joshua ever sought the top spot. Not a hint of it. Now that is very wise. That that speaks of his maturity. Um, Psalm seventy five. Let you turn over there if you would. Psalm 75 gives the proper perspective of promotion that we should all carry in our hearts. Psalm 75 verse six says, "For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. Some translations say promotion. Both would be correct. When you're promoted, you're exalted. When you're exalted, you're promoted. So they're both right. Not from the east, not from the west, not from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. So ultimately, as we read the Scriptures, We find out that the one who is behind promotion is God. God is the one in Isaiah 40. Let's go to Isaiah 40. Just turn to your right. If you get to Ezekiel, you've gone too far. If you get to Nahum, go back. In Isaiah 40, it's talking, Isaiah 40 is talking about the greatness of God. And what's happening in Isaiah 40 is that Isaiah invites the readers to take things that they think are great and compare them to God. That's what he's doing. So, what he does, uh, you know, in verse. uh, Right right around uh, 15, he takes great nations. You know, he takes the the United Nations Security Council. Boy, there's a group of bozos, huh? But they're the great nations. They're the significance nations. They're the big guys. They're the big dogs. They're on there. You know, they got power. They got this. They got oil. They got, you know, nuclear, you know, whatever. Okay. Verse fifteen of Isaiah forty: Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. I just savor that for a minute. Take the most powerful nation. Take Red China. Take Iran. Take uh, take us. Wherever else you want to take. They're not like water coming out of a bucket. They're like a drop. Do you worry about a drop out of a bucket? No, you really don't. You really don't. If you're filling up, say, uh, a container, and you've got a... uh, Come on, what do you call those things? That's big. We did this last week, didn't we? I couldn't think of the word I wanted. This is getting sad, guys. Funnel sounds like you guys, And the thing is, you guys are as bad as I am. You take a funnel, and let's say you got a container, a small container, and you want to f- fill that container out of a bucket. So you know you're carefully doing it. You're watching it pretty carefully, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. And then you back it off, and you don't want to spill any. But as you're putting it back. A drop comes off. Are are you. Who gives a rip? It's a drop. Just a drop. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. I really like this. Don't you? Behold, he he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn. You know, Lebanon, Lebanon, heavily forested nation. Look at verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. That's what God thinks of nations. They're nothing. They're spit. That's what he thinks about them. And if you're wondering if he really means that, Look at the next line. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. (laughs) I love reading this stuff. Don't you? Somebody ought to chisel that in the vestibule of the United Nations building. (laughs) Let those bozos read that every time they come in there. It is he, verse 22, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Now watch 23. See, well, some people say, well, those are nations. But you know, some nations have greater rulers than others. Oh, this guy's a great ruler. This guy's, watch this. Watch 23. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth Meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like the stubble. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. Great nations, great leaders, do you compare them to God? They're absolutely void. They're absolutely meaningless. Um, Look at verse uh, 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. All of them, not some of them. He's not looking through a Hubble telescope trying to figure out what else is out there. He set them out there. Isn't that amazing? Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. That's that's who our God is. He's a great God. So what does this great God do? Well, what this great God does is is that... uh, He is the one who promotes. He is the one who knows best. He's in charge of nations. He's in charge of the leaders of the nations. He puts them in office for a while, for a season. When he's done, he removes them, puts someone else in their place. This is the way it's been all the way through history. All the way through history. This weekend at the retreat, we were... Let me show you... One verse we talked about this weekend at the retreat. Go to Daniel chapter 11. Because Daniel, and see, God owns history and God runs history. And if you're looking for Daniel, go to the right. These books can be hard to find sometimes. And if you're in Matthew, go back to the left. That's okay. It takes a while to figure out what these books are. I think, uh, I was thinking about this, Um, since we met last Wednesday, I believe I have spoken seven different times. Now, what happens is, the reason I bring that up is, sometimes I forget what I said where. And I'm wondering to myself, did I say this last Wednesday night? Now, I know I said it this weekend, but I don't know if I said it last Wednesday night or not. If I did... Uh, I'm going to say it again, because it's worth saying. I want to show you how God raises up leaders. I want to show you how God promotes. When God is talking to Daniel, we're right in the middle of a section here where God is revealing to Daniel what's going to happen in the future. And in verse 36 of 11, he speaks of the coming one who will be the Antichrist. There is going to be a leader that will raise up. He will be the leader of the entire world. He will unite the world. And it says in verse 36 of Daniel 11, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished For that which is decreed will be done, God says. Another way of reading that is, that which has been planned will be done. God isn't saying this might happen. God is saying this is going to happen. There is going to be a leader that I am going to raise up who is going to speak against me and raise himself above every God, including me. It's part of the plan. I have decreed this. Verse 37, he gives us a little more description of this guy. He will show no regard for the God of his fathers or for the desire of women. I take that to mean that he'll be a homosexual. It's the only way I can take it. Nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. And then it goes on. My point is, is that God is the one who raises up leaders, even those who are opposed to him. We could take the time, but I won't. In in Isaiah, God speaks to Cyrus, who, by the way, Cyrus hasn't been born yet. But God speaks to Cyrus 150 years before the guy exists in Isaiah and says, you're going to be king of Persia, and you're going to be the guy who's going to send my people back to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happened. And and he also says of... uh, of Cyrus, even though you don't know me, this is what I'm gonna do through you. So my point is, are you starting to get the sense that God raises up leaders and God sets them down? I, I'm hoping this is coming across. I, I truly am. Because quite frankly, what happens tonight in that debate really doesn't matter. I mean you knew that before that's why you didn't go. <laughs> I mean you knew that. You knew it after watching the first debate. Hey. It could be the greatest debate in the history of the world. Let me tell you something. God's already got his plan. It's been decreed. It's been decreed. Now, Joshua had seen this great God at work. He had seen his power at work in in Egypt, had he not? Seen the the ten plagues come? He saw God open the Red Sea? I I, I think it's important that we understand that although Joshua was given the top spot, Joshua never sought it. Joshua never politicked. Joshua never sent out emails. Joshua never made sure that at a party he talked to these four guys. Because you see, if God is in control of your life and God is in charge of your life, you say, well, wait a minute, Steve, I'd like to move ahead and I'd like to... Sure, who wouldn't? Who doesn't want to? Who doesn't want to achieve and who doesn't want to accomplish and who doesn't want to uh, achieve excellence in your work? And, and we, we have a country where if, if you work hard and if you uh, are, are willing to, to do what it takes to get the job done... Uh, in the majority of cases, if you're willing to do that, you're going to be rewarded for your efforts. And very possibly, you will be given a promotion. You will see an increase in your rewards and in your status, in your uh, recom- um, uh, Not reco- uh, I was thinking of something else. Once again, compensation. I should have just said money. It would have been a lot easier, wouldn't it? Uh, So is there anything wrong with that? No, there's really nothing wrong with it. As long as you don't politic, as long as you don't manipulate, as long as you don't get bitter when someone else gets it and you don't. Because, see, this is where you got to... See, this is where, guys, as we're going through life, we got to take a step back and see it through the lens of Scripture. God's in charge of my life. Hey, that promotion, would I like that promotion? Yeah, but let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You know who determines whether or not you get that promotion? Not that HR committee. God determines it. You say, yeah, but there's a lot of office politics. I know there's a lot of office politics. God determines it. God determines it all. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it. Turns what? The king's heart. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Now, that's a verse. I mean, that's a verse. (laughs) Sometimes we think our destiny and our futures are in the hands of some committee somewhere. Or you got some guy at work that's got it in for you. And he's talking about you. And he's got status, and he's got respect. And listen, if he's talking against you, you're pretty much fried, aren't you? Unless God wants you there. Unless God wants you in a position that he... Hey, let me tell you something. If God wants you in a position and he doesn't, guess who's going to win? You know who's going to win. Oh, by the way, if you don't get the position, guess who's behind that? Well, the office. Chump the office. Who's behind that? God is. God raises up. God sets down. God's in charge of my life. He knows all about it. He knows every detail. He knows he knows the whole thing. Office politics. He knows stuff you don't know. Quite a bit you don't know, and I don't know. Is that not true? Sure, it is. See, this is why, when jo- this is why Joshua didn't seek it, and when Joshua got it, Caleb didn't get mad. Caleb didn't go start another church. He said, "Well, we're going to Salina. (laughs) We're going to start a church in Salina. So what we're going to do? I can't believe they put him in there. I mean, I've I've worked with him for years. I know stuff about him that nobody knows. Well, and he did. But see, Caleb didn't have Caleb. He didn't have that grit. Hey, look, God's running the show. Isn't that healthy?" It just takes the pressure off, doesn't it? All right, let's go to number two. (sighs) I don't want to go to number two yet. Sorry. (laughs) I thought I did, but I don't. My brother-in-law sent me an article today uh, that I think has application here. Lou, good to have you back. You got that time clock working back there? All right, good. Turn it off. (laughs) This is a guy named uh, Dr. Mark T. Mitchell. He is a professor at Patrick Henry University in um, Virginia. And uh, it's about, uh, it's some observations he has, 10 questions and a modest proposal. And it's about the bailout, but you're going to see it has application to our lives in every area and leadership and what we're talking about here. Dr. Mitchell says, the emergency bailout has passed and now Americans, along with the rest of the world, wait for signs of good news. In the days leading up to the passage of the final package, politicians from both parties grimly warned that what was at stake was our American way of life, and without massive intervention of the country and perhaps the world, oh, without massive intervention, the country and perhaps the world was headed towards an economic apocalypse. I must admit that I am skeptical when powerful folks ask for more power. I'm even more skeptical when they do so using fear as a motivation. Uh, When the choice is a massive government intervention or a worldwide disaster, we do well to ask how we got into such a conundrum. Okay. Striking a chord here with some guys. Um, uh, Like most Americans and the honest economist, I don't pretend to understand all the intricacies of this situation. But I do have a handful of questions that seem worth asking. I'm not going to give you all ten. I'm just going to pick a few. Number two is... The bailout was ostensibly necessary to protect our American way of life. That such a reason was offered without justification indicates that our way of life is an axiom that must be assumed but never questioned. But is it too much to consider, if only for a moment, that perhaps our way of life is precisely the problem? (laughs) Don't you love it when somebody talks common sense? It is it's it's so refreshing, is it not? It's just refreshing. Gosh. Huh. I got to do this cuz the print's too small. So To the extent that consumer oh 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 okay. Here we go. This has nothing to do with my point, but it's so good I had to read it. Of course, a way of life is a complex thing, but insofar as the American way of life consists in living beyond our means, it is unsustainable. To the extent that consumer credit is at an all-time high and personal savings at an all-time low, the American way of life is irresponsible. I don't know this guy, but I like him. Here's number three. This also has nothing to do with my point. Public debt mirrors private debt. Both publicly and privately, we've become a nation that demands immediate self-gratification. Is such a national disposition healthy? No. I'm I'm fighting off the others, and I'm going to six. We are told that the catalyst for the current economic troubles is the housing market. Consider the following. In the late 1950s, the average house had one bathroom and was something under 1,000 square feet. Today, the market standard is one bathroom for every bedroom, and the average square footage has more than doubled. Ironically, the size of families has declined precipitously during those same decades so that the average square foot footage per person has risen dramatically. Once again, it has no point, but I feel better. Now here's my point, is number 10. In Greek drama, hubris plays a key role. This is the fatal pride that brings down even the greatest of men. Is hubris at the heart of this crisis? Hubris is the failure to acknowledge limits. It is the failure to live within the bounds proper to human beings. Ultimately, it is a failure of virtue. When we delay payments rather than our gratification, we reveal our ill-formed character. When our demands for more things are limited only by our insatiable imaginations, vice is running the show when our leaders tell us that they can solve any crisis if only we grant them more power, hubris has taken center stage. Now, I think most of us in here would agree with that. If you don't agree with it, you should. Hubris views yourself as a supreme judge, and hubris views yourself as supreme wisdom. Which leads me to number two. See, there actually was a connection. And here's number two. It is hubris to tell God when he should promote you. Let me say that one more time. It is hubris to tell God when he should promote you. Now here's the deal, you get, you get males and we're working hard and we want to achieve and we want to accomplish our goals but sometimes we work hard and we're not accomplishing our goals and sometimes we feel that God is working against us we feel that hey, hey, give me a break here I'm under pressure. Um, my wife's on my case. Can I say that? Sure, there are no women in here, I can say. <laughs> Espe- you know, sometimes, especially when it's financial stuff, financial security is a huge issue to a wife. It's huge. It's, it's huge to her than it is to you. Public school. It's 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 bigger to her than it is to you, isn't it? Financial security for women is huge. It's huge, and so when you're working hard, but you don't feel like you're progressing, and you don't pre, you're achieving, and you know, and and, uh, and other opportunities aren't opening, and doors aren't opening, and the pressure gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, then we get frustrated, and we see others perhaps that are advancing and, and promoted, and all this. Can I say this to you? And then we get frustrated, and we get a little bit angry. We try not to get angry because we're not, you know, who am I to get angry at God? But there are moments when we get upset with God and we wonder why God has not promoted us. It is hubris. It is pride to tell God anything. Is it not? I'll tell you how I've been praying about this election. I've been praying it would go away. No, I just. <laughs> you say, well, you know, we're in church. We shouldn't talk about this. Well, uh, no, I, I think we ought to, we, you know. I, I think you've got to look at elections biblically. Now, I know, but let, let me put it this way. For me personally, it's not necessarily, I'm just giving you my personal opinion. Where I am, I'm not really excited about voting for someone. It's just that I'm for sure not voting for him. So it's sort of a double negative. It's the lesser of two evils. i That's just my personal thing here. So when I pray, but see, I'm concerned if it goes this way as opposed to this way, I, I see some real some real serious things in the short term and in the long term that really, really concern me. But I'm out praying. I'm not walking around the pasture and I'm praying. And here's and here's how I've been praying. I've been praying, you know, Lord? I don't want to presume here, to even ask you to do this a certain way. Because I don't know how you want to do it. So I'm just going to pray here, not my will, but thine be done. But I'd sure appreciate it if you wouldn't put that guy in. I always come back to that. I can't help it. But I'm, I'm sorry. But you know, it's, just help me with it. Just help me with it. And see, how do you get any peace? You know what? The way I get peace is not my will, but time be done. And let me tell you something. If it goes the way I don't want it to go, it's his will. I'm not real hot on this Antichrist guy in Daniel 11, are you? (laughs) I'm not real excited about him. He's coming. Not a cotton picking thing you can do about it. He's coming. So we're going to be around. Nobody knows. He's coming. God's going to send him. God's going to raise him up. So how do you pray? Not my will, but thine be done. It's hubris to tell God anything. It's hubris to tell God when to promote. Well, just, hey, hey, he he knows where you are. He knows you're struggling. He knows. So so what do you do? You you say, Lord, I give it to you. And, And you know the pressure and you know the concern and you know where my wife is. Lord, just help me to get under the mercy. Help me to bow. Help me to trust you. I don't like this. I don't like where I am. But, but Lord, I, I, I give you my life all over again today. And my life's in your hands, and my wife and my kids, we're all in your hands. Help me to submit to you today and to go about what you have given me to do today. And at the right time, Lord, would you make a way? But as the psalmist said, Lord, answer me quickly, for I am in distress. i give you number three. God tries men before he promotes them. Some of you guys remember the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Um, there was a guy in Nashville in 1986 who was in his mid-20s who was a multi-millionaire. He was working real estate deals left and right, all within the confines and boundaries of the law. He knew the Tax Reform Act of 1986 like the back of his hand. And he was making money, hand over fist, multimillionaire, 26 years old. And then, like that, the Tax Reform Act was null and void. And his whole life changed immediately. Because all the rules changed within 24 hours. It's sort of like playing Scrabble, and somebody walks in and says, from here on out, you can only do words in Russian. <laughs> I mean, that's how radical it was. They just, they just flipped everything, everything that had been up until now. It's over. It's done. Here are the new rules. Uh, he had some banks call some loans. Couldn't meet them. He had to declare bankruptcy. And it so marked him and so crushed him he made a vow that he'd never go into debt again, ever. He was a Christian, loved the Lord. Suddenly he had a voracious appetite to find out what God had to say about business and about investment and about debt, and he began to study. And he began to read books that Larry Burkett wrote, Ron Blue or any of these guys. He'd go to some he'd go to everything. The guy had a voracious hunger. Because he wanted to know what God said. Not what is the government, what does God say? And, and as he's working this through, he'll you know, have coffee with a friend or a buddy or another guy in real estate, and as they're talking, he starts saying, well, you know, here, here, let me show you what I found in this verse. And then, you know, what God says here and what God says here. And what happened within, you know, a year, a guy at his church he was sharing with, he said, you know what, uh, I got a Sunday school class and young couples, and could, could you come in? I mean, what you just told me, would you come in on Sunday? And, do, and he said, well, well, I guess. He said, you, you just gave me this stuff. Come in. So he did. And then it was, it was so well received, some couple said, is there any way you could meet with us? And, and he said, well, yeah. And, and so he did. And then, then they gave him a Sunday school class. And then they said, can you print this stuff up? And then, the guy's name is Dave Ramsey. I think he's on the Fox Business Channel at 7 o'clock. Committed Christian. I remember the first time I turned on the Fox Business Channel and there was Dave Ramsey. I thought, wow. They They got a committed Christian on there speaking biblical principles. Wow, how did he get there? Can I tell you how? God promoted him. Oh, but can we also say this? God tries men before he promotes. Do you think Dave got hurt? Think he got crushed? Think he got embarrassed? Think he got humiliated? Think that was hard on him? Think it was hard on his marriage? Yeah, I imagine it was. You see, guys, sometimes uh, things change. But when things change, you cannot forget that God is sovereign in your life. When things change, I, 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 was, I, I read a book over the summer on, on George Washington, and uh, I, I didn't know this about Washington, and I didn't know this about the culture, but as you know, he had Mount Vernon, and uh, George Washington was a, uh, he was a Virginia planter. Not a Virginia farmer, a Virginia planter. There's a difference. You see, Virginia planters would only plant one crop, and it was tobacco. And it was a, it was a social thing. It, uh, to be a Virginia planter was a title that carried with it certain social ramifications. Well, I'm reading this book over the summer, and any Virginia planter, and there were thousands of them, They'd only plant one crop, which was tobacco. But at a certain point, Washington suddenly found himself, along with all the other Virginia planters, in a credit crunch. Funny how history comes around, isn't it? So what did they do? Well, all the other planters just kept doing what they were doing. But uh, Washington had been reading some books. And he he decided to do something that absolutely shocked all of his neighbors and all of his peers. What he did was, he pulled out the tobacco, and he planted alfalfa, wheat, buckwheat, corn, and flax. And that year, he turned a profit. And, the other, and many of them went down. And in this book, Richard Brookheiser makes this point. He says, successful businessmen often change their businesses in mid-career. In the early 19th century, John Jacob Astor, America's first millionaire, switched from fur trading to New York City real estate. Why? Because fur trading went down the tubes. That's why. So what did he do? He switched. He transitioned. He made a change. Uh, Cornelius, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt moved from shipping, which had given him the title Commodore, to railroads. Why? Because shipping was tanking. Railroads were the new thing. Wasn't it in here last week? I quoted from someone, yeah, yeah, the Irish, um, the Irish manufacturer in 1857. Yeah. And then I said there was a worldwide panic in 1857. Well, if you read about the worldwide panic and the bank runs in 1857, one of the things that happened is that the railroad stocks collapsed. But see, when Vanderbilt moved from shipping to railroads, they were just taken off. Uh, Washington's switch was tougher because he risked his prestige. Anyway, all I'm saying is, guys, is that these things that come into our lives, what's God doing? He's testing us. He's trying us. If you've never been through adversity, I mentioned to you last week my son Josh is is a rookie teacher in the Dallas Independent School District. And uh, he started in this program... Uh, he got into it in June. And so he's been there, what, how many, what, three, four months now? And he's over at the house on Sunday, and, you know, Rachel's there and John, and we're eating dinner, and we're talking, and how's this thing coming? Well, it doesn't look real good. It looked good for a minute, but it doesn't look real good now. And uh, he said, we're going to know this week, Dad. I said, really? I said, what are you going to do, Josh, if they give you a pink slip? He said, well, I'm thinking about this and this. I said, hey, you know what you ought to do? You know what you ought to do, Josh? I said, how long have you been there? He said, well, since June. I said, what you ought to do is you ought to go and talk to the school board and tell them you want to be the superintendent of the (laughs) schools. And he looked at me like I would lost my mind. He said, what are you talking about, Dad? I said, how long have you been a teacher? Three, four months? What is that? 90 days? 120 days? 140 days? (laughs) Why don't you just go in there and tell them you want to run the whole thing? They'd laugh at you. You know why they'd laugh at you? Because leaders are to be tried and leaders are to be tested before they are promoted. Let me give you number four. Here's number four. Here's number four. You will be proven, then promoted. Proven, then promoted. (laughs) There's gold and there's fool's gold. Is there not? You ever seen Fool's Gold? You know what Fool's Gold looks like? Gold. I remember reading back in 1988 about a man who was in a gourmet club. It was his turn that week to have everybody over for dinner in the club. You know, each week they'd eat somewhere else. And uh, this guy was a real gourmet, a real connoisseur, and He was was so into it, he went out and picked his own mushrooms. uh was right. That's what they were saying. Uh Uh-oh. And three people died after that dinner party, and six were in intensive care. He got the wrong kind of mushrooms. They look just like the real, the good ones. But you see, there's a difference between Wrong mushrooms and right mushrooms, fool's gold and gold. Gold, how do you tell if it's fool's gold or if it's gold? You put it through the fire. You put it through the fire. That's what God does. God puts his men through the fire. You see what we're talking about here when we're talking about promotion? You read the book of James, it talks about selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. It's what Satan had in his heart. Selfish ambition is the need to lead. Selfish ambition is the need to be number one. Selfish ambition is the need to be out front. Selfish ambition is to get the adulation and the praise. You know what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9? We make it our ambition to please the Lord. And this is the crux of the issue. God takes a man... And God puts him through the fire. You know what God's testing? One of the things he's testing is ambition. He's going to make sure that our ambition is to please him, is to follow him. And see, we're all drawn to the bright lights, the big money, this, this. And what God does is he takes that, he puts us through the fire. And then when a guy is in the fire and tested in the fire and comes out the other end and is proven, he'll promote him. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting uh, Jerry Boykin. He was uh, one of the first members of Delta Force, became commanding general of Delta Force eventually. But he was talking about the early days of Delta Force. And and you know, Delta Force, the government wouldn't even acknowledge it existed. Uh, But Boykin said this about the kind of men they were looking for back when they put the whole thing together. He says, in some ways, Delta Force was a counterintuitive approach to military ops. No credit, no glory, no ticker tape parades. There would be no public award ceremonies or receptions. Our names would not appear in the newspapers. Success would be celebrated and stories swapped only privately among an inner circle of special ops and intel professionals already privy to information about SCI level, sensitive compartmental information missions. In fact, the Pentagon did not officially acknowledge our existence. After Delta began, a standard search of of military personnel records for a William G. Boykin would reveal that no man with that name ever served in the United States Army. That's the kind of God that man. That's the kind of man that God's looking for. It's said in Third John of Diotrephes. It's said of Diotrephes that he loved to be first among the brethren. He didn't pass the test. Didn't pass it at all. Joshua did. Caleb did and we want to pass it. So we pray before the Father. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for letting us have a glimpse of the process that you take us through. And Lord, would you help us, each of us, in our own hearts, to be aware of this giant of self-promotion? You know where we are. You have a mission for each of us. You have a work for each of us to do. But Lord, before you work through us, you will first work in us. Help us not to fight you in the process, but to submit to it. We, we, we get so anxious and we get so fretful that you won't use us. You will use us, but in your way, in your time. In the interim, help us to trust. And help us to do our work that you have set before us to the best of our ability to your glory. For he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.